Ready graphics. Ready theme. Doing a My Two Dads. Interesting concession. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it's like, she's not an unwed mother. She's a formerly wed mother. I also found it really confusing, the concept of a child born out of wedlock. I was like, doesn't that mean that you come, you emerge from wedlock and it's fine? Hi, it's Lauren Milberger. And this is Jesse Mullins. And welcome to part two of our fantastic, amazing interview with Sarah Marshall. We're so happy that you have returned to us. Yes, you may remember Sarah Marshall as the co-host of You're Wrong About and Why Our Dads. And this is a continuation of our conversation uh, from part one. Uh, we got to go in depth with Sarah on one of our favorite series that she has on You're Wrong About, which is about the O.J. Simpson case. We're going to talk about all of the comedy shows, sitcoms, dramedies, and so forth that reference the O.J. Simpson case in all its different forms in pop culture. It's actually really interesting. Yes. And also we got to speak with Sarah uh, about one of the things that really touched our hearts, which is her, uh, she still has her Faith Ford cookbook. And we got to hear a lot about that. So definitely stay tuned for that because we get to share our special love for the one and only Faith Ford. And pies. And so many pies. And sort of our own version of you're wrong about, about you're wrong about. <laughs> Enjoy the interview. So one of the things that you are working on right now, and how many part series would you say your OJ series is right now? I've lost track in a good way. You know, yeah, we just recorded the 14th <laughs> episode of it, and it is on the firing of Howard Weitzman, OJ's original lawyer. And is mostly a big detour about the trial of John DeLorean, which is Howard Weitzman's really biggest case as a lawyer, I think. He now represents Justin Bieber um, and also works with Sean Hawley, formerly Sean Chapman, of the OJ defense team to do so, which I think is cool. Or maybe it's proof that L.A. is a very small town. But, yeah, we I, I feel like it's going to end up being like 75 episodes or something because my feeling is like this is a soap opera. We have a wonderful tight 10-part sort of limited series about it by Ryan Murphy that I feel like is a, you know, kind of gives just like a chain of events and a, a place to go for basic OJ literacy. Amazing performances by Sarah Paulson and Courtney B. Vance. And we have OJ Made in America, which I think is a seven-part documentary series, which I also love. And I feel like this is like, this is the Dark Shadows version <laughs> of the trial. This is the Judge Parker version where like the point is not to get to the end. The point is to just talk about this ongoing story that all of these people are bringing this different baggage to. And it's I think it is to me actually this kind of an intentionally cumbersome, intentionally frustrating art piece that's trying to say like we would like to process these stories instantaneously, but actually if we if we truly attempt to be like, who's here? Who's he? What's his deal? What has he done to this point? Like, what is the biography of all the people that we're meeting as they come together? How are they looking at each other and seeing wildly different things? Like, how do we give kind of full time to people in this cast of characters? Like, I feel as if the fact that it is taking as long as it is and the product is as long and as baggy as it is, is kind of my statement on the impossibility of like concisely describing events. I mean, I find the series fascinating. Oh, yeah. And it's one of those things where you think, oh, well, I was alive during this time. I know everything. 
you know, I've been saturated with it. But you had a job it. and friends and you had to sleep for eight hours a night. So there were limitations. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I vividly remember being in grade school and somebody seeing a white Bronco and ever, everyone be like, it's OJ. Like, it was such a thing. <laughs> and let's just preface this with, I was at a grade school in Anchorage, Alaska. There is <laughs> no way that he was there, but we were positive. Speaking of which, I do love your Exxon Oil Valdez episode. Oh, thank Made you me so very much. happy. It happened on my birthday when I was three. We got to do an, uh, an Iditarod episode someday, too, because like I because you're wrong about that is like, it's not about the serum run. It's to keep the great sport of dog sledding alive. If you need someone to talk to, I used to go to the ceremonial start every year. Yeah, it's yeah, it got me. So I love the series that you're doing so much. And obviously the the painstaking amount of research that you've done is is phenomenal. And it reminded me that Murphy Brown did their own sort of foray into yeah. Mm-hmm. Their version, although minus race, mm-hmm. which I think is very interesting, of yeah. you know of OJ making it someone else, and then it it became sort of a a night of uh, crossovers where at the time Diane mm-hmm. English had another show called Love and War that she worked on, and the story continued there. So I looked into that, and something that I had not realized, obviously, but looking back, I remembered was that a lot of pop culture, particularly sitcoms and comedies, were doing OJ stuff. In a way that I can't remember with any other either cultural, newsworthy touchstone. Now, was this something that you came across in your research at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And something I found especially interesting, because a while ago I started, I do this every few years, I start watching the original Law and Orders from the beginning and see how far I get. And I never go past Jerry Orbach leaving the show because, in my opinion, they're just that was it. The show stopped at the end. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I will watch the episodes predating him because I like Paul Sorvino and George Senza. But during the year, I think the 94 to 95 season, so starting in like September 1994, they did this interesting thing where they had quite a lot of episodes that were commenting on some kind of theme of the case or the trial. So there was an episode where Larry Miller, like, probably hired someone to kill his wife, but they can't get him and they got to just let him go. And the episode uncharacteristically ends with like Larry Miller getting off scot-free and moving to Seattle to have some kids or whatever. Um, They did an episode like they, you know, they've always did episodes trying to whatever degree of success to (laughs) commentate on uh, a, a white moderates idea of uh, race relations. And so they had, and actually in that season, interestingly, they had an episode with Sarah Paulson in it, playing a girl who pretended to be having an affair with her stepdad or something like that. And also they had a Courtney B. Vance episode that was on the theme of like, are you allowed to kill your boss out of racially motivated rage and trauma? No, it was insider trading. The end. Um, And... Um, you know, you're just kind of flirting with these issues and then being like, no, it was insider trading. Don't worry. It's fine. There's not there's not a big racial thing happening in this country. It's uh, don't worry about it. Larry Miller got away. And then once actually the trial was over, they mentioned it by name. But before then, they were like, we live in an allegorical universe. And and I, I was also thinking about this with Murphy Brown. I feel like Sitcoms used to do this, where you would have characters who, like, everyone knew who they were supposed to be, but they just weren't going to say it directly. I feel like that was a thing at the time. But then also sometimes they would just <laughs> go straight in on it, like the episode of Designing Women where they're all just watching the Anita Hill testimony. 
Yeah, it was interesting. I remember we've talked about this before. We're massive West Wing people. The idea that it lived in a, you know, a somewhat parallel idealistic yeah. world. But then when they did the live debate episodes in the final election, one of the oops that happened is that Jimmy Smith's mentions Enron. And everyone's like, no, we don't talk about the real things. We just kind of allude to them. It's very interesting. And then there's a the thing of like what can and can't exist for us to be in a world of allegory. Because I think in Veep, Reagan existed. Yeah, they reference Reagan because there's a line about like, do you buy the theory that Reagan arranged the assassination to get a week of bed rest? But no one after Reagan exists. Like the the world diverges from ours in 1988. And uh, I don't know, maybe they elect Dukakis and that's how I ended up with two female presidents in a row. <laughs> I have to know, did you watch The Fix? No. So it's Marsha Clark's show that she wrote as essentially the oh. like vindication oh, that's of right. her character. Yeah. Oh, I would love to see this. Where she okay. gets the guy. And is this like fictionalized or what is it? It was one season uh-huh. on ABC. Robin Tunney plays... Marsh Clark. Oh my god, I love Robin Tunney. <laughs> I, I, it's why I watched it because I was like Robin Tunney. Yeah, I love her. But it essentially is like the opening kind of montage is the OJ trial, hmm. and then it picks up years later and it's happened again. That's so interesting. And yeah. she gets her chance to finally oh, wow. get him. <sighs> and yeah, Marsha is one of the producers. That's great. And it's, it's, it's. I would say you know. No offense, Marsha. It's heavy handed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a reason it only went one season. But as somebody who grew up on that story and, you know, will just absorb any content about it because it's both nostalgia and I just get more information. Uh, it is fascinating to see knowing that it's written by the person who wants this fantasy to happen where you get the guy finally. Right. So I think you might find it interesting. And that's, I think, what. I love about her podcast. She had a podcast. She did a few episodes on, you know, the Robert Blake case and, you know, again, like kind of the one that got away type stories, the defendant that got away. And um, I think what I love about Marsha, I mean, many things, but one is that like she owns her shit. Like she is pissed that that he got away and also that, you know, got away partly in a sideshow that involved her being treated like the bad guy for a lot of it. And I just, I love it when people own their biases. I feel like people really don't tend to do that. And um, yeah, I and it's funny too, because like I, people assume that like I must hate O.J. Simpson and I will always defend O.J. Simpson in my way. I'm like, he's a malignant narcissist in my opinion, who in my opinion <laughs> stabbed two innocent people to death. But also... He had a trial. He had due process. He was acquitted. End of story. You shouldn't send someone to prison for a wildly overzealous sentence for stealing back their own Heisman trophy. Like, the courts had their shot with him. It didn't work out. Sorry. Like, make the LAPD do a better job. Like, train your cops. Figure it out. Don't put him in prison for something else, because that's just cheating. And when there was a photo of him getting his COVID shot, I think people people were sending it to me, I think, thinking that it would make me mad. And I was like, he's a senior citizen. Let him get his shot. <laughs> you know, and I think like calling him a, a senior citizen and not letting him take up real estate mm-hmm. in my infuriated brain is probably what would be most annoying to him. So I feel good about it. <laughs> exactly. That's the real justice. <laughs> Just forgetting someone. <laughs> well, what I find interesting is also sort of the the complete left or right or black and white of the ways that a lot of these comedies went. You know, you have Seinfeld that had Jackie Childs. Right. Hey, Your Honor, 
We request at this time that Ms. Mishki try on the bra. Oh. This court will come to order. Go ahead, Ms. Mishki, try it on. It doesn't fit. I, I can't put it on. Damn fools. Look at that. We got nothing now. Nothing. Parroting or mocking, you know, the lawyers. Mm -hmm. You have Roseanne, which did this sort of surreal thing where Laurie Medcalf played Marsha Clark. That's right. <laughs> in this weird sort of <laughs> vignette so at the end, which you're not sure is a dream or is part of it. You've got kids working 16 hours a day. I mean, where do you find the time? I'm a single mom. I make time. <laughs> While I'm doing laundry, I go over DNA evidence. While I'm making sandwiches for the kids, I look for baloney the defense is throwing at me. <laughs> And today, while I'm grilling Kato Kalin in front of an audience of millions, I'm cleaning my oven. Well, when do you sleep? Whenever Ethley Bailey opens his mouth. But then you have the Larry Sanders show, where mm -hmm. they literally actually, because the show is about show business in L.A. Mm -hmm. Is that the same suit O.J. wore the last time we did the show? Now, last time he was on, you bumped him for Faith Ford. Hey, hey, who knew he was going to get this hot? Uh, come on. They literally debate two of the characters, Hank and Phil, Phil, one of the writers, if O.J. did it or not. There's no fake mm. character. Come on, come on. They found blood on his Bronco. They found blood in his house. Mm -hmm. They found a bloody glove on his property. How do you explain all of that? He's always been nice to me. <sighs> I can't believe I'm having this conversation with you. What? I am freaking out. Some of the reviews at the time, particularly of Murphy Brown and some of these other shows, was that they weren't being impartial and that mm -hmm. it was giving off a, a one-sided argument, particularly to perhaps before they picked, before there was a trial and they picked mm. people who were going to yeah. be judging and that they were being influenced. It almost sort of reminds me of what was happening with, you know, you guys did a wonderful segment, episodes, I should say, mm. on Princess Diana. Now, there's been a debate about whether Netflix needs to put something at the beginning of the episodes of The Crown saying that it's mm. not... <laughs> completely yep. based on fact that it's adapted when we all know that it is. I didn't realize how saturated mm. pop culture mm -hmm. was or alongside the news, kind of in a similar way with Gary Hart, if you think about it. The whole landscape changed. Oh, yeah. And you don't realize, I think, until you look back. But also in general, do you think that this kind of media perhaps influenced the trial? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I feel like one of the things people complain about with that trial is that the jury was, like, actually too good of a jury, right? In the sense that they didn't appear to to go in to being impaneled already swayed by the media. They didn't go in already thinking that the defendant was guilty. And uh, you want that, right? Like, that's actually kind of our thing that we say we want to do. And it's always interesting to see, you know, a, a, a system, a place, whatever, a workplace... Uh, say that it has a certain value and then getting really upset when that value is actually implemented. Um, and so, yeah, I feel as if it it certainly affected everyone 
uh, or nearly everyone in America and, uh, you know, to some extent in the world who is trying to make sense of this story because, and I was thinking about this when watching the Love and War episode. May I be so bold as to remind you that in this country we have a little concept called innocent until proven guilty. Right. The man's brother was found dead from a blow to the head with a hard, jagged object. They found moon rock dust in his hair. I think that narrows the field of suspects, don't you? You don't know. I mean, what if somebody was trying to frame Duke, huh? Right. Mr. Astronaut in the living room with a moon rock. Okay. Have another beer, please, Abe. Oh, you, you gotta wait your turn, Meg. I'm a busy man. This kind of high-tension drama makes a person very, very thirsty. All right, now, who's next? Uh, another one right here. God bless America. <laughs> because going to a bar in Philadelphia and watching this debate with a bunch of people, and I was like, oh, my God, I miss watching things in bars with people. <laughs> like, that was just a thing people used to do, and they still do right now, but I frown upon it. Um, if they're in America or some other country that is, you know, decimated by a plague. And that is something that I feel as if sitcoms actually offer kind of a version of or did at the time that like if you aren't going out to an actual bar that you like to go to and talking to different people about what you think, then like you get a proxy of it by watching, you know, people in a workplace, people in a bar, like having the conversation that you would be having in your community if you could um, or if you had the time or whatever. And I feel as if like that I don't know. It's it's like, what are you supposed to do with media coverage of upcoming trials? Because there was the O.J. Simpson trial started in late January 1995, and he was arrested after the Bronco chase June 17th, 1994. So we have like a seven month period of lag time where like you can <laughs> you can almost make a baby <laughs> in that much time, you know, so just like <laughs> you cannot tell people not to talk about it. You can't restrict sort of fictionalized versions of it or tell people not to make media about it. So I feel as if it's like people want to talk about it. They want to speculate about it. And I feel as if like encouraging different forms of speculation is important. This idea that just, I mean, just the basic idea that you don't have to know what you think and that if other people around you seem like they know what they think, then that means, you know, you don't have to necessarily. Or, you know, I, but I do think that just trying to talk about something allegorically, like, it's interesting. I would love to talk about what you think about how those two episodes function. Because, you know, there's no mistaking what they're talking about. Yes. Like, even a small child, I think, could, could figure it out. Frank, where did you hear that the murder weapon might be a moon rock? From a high-ranking unnamed source. See, I think no one was willing to go on record with that. But historically, it may seem different. If the weapon was, in fact, a moon rock, that could prove pretty incriminating against Duke. Mm, that's right, Jim. And if we weren't conjecturing on pure speculation, I might hypothetically agree with you. <laughs> Excellent point. We now go to Corky Sherwood, who spoke earlier with an attendant from the gas station where Duke usually fills up his car. And we're clear on the floor. Well, I think some doubting Debbie owes her producer an apology. Not only has a national hero been charged with murder, but he has fled the police live on our broadcast. Ooh, it doesn't get any better than this. Oh, jeez. Miles, smoke a cigarette and towel off. A man's life is being destroyed for a crime we don't even know he committed. Hey, we do this all the time. You think that businessman whose life you destroyed on last week's show thought he was treated fairly? 
I didn't destroy his life. He can always move to another country under an assumed name and herd goats to a ripe old age. Before the broadcast, you were convinced Stoop was innocent. Are you still so sure? Innocent people don't usually run. Well, the thing that surprised me, and it's not like the show later on did shows about race, but it's not necessarily what the show was known for. It Mm. is a very white cast. But there was something so absent Mm -hmm. for me looking back on it that never occurred to me at the time when I watched it. It is a white, older astronaut character who supposedly may or not have killed his brother, Mm -hmm. right? And yet, if it's doing some sort of satire on the media, uh, the fact that this trial, particularly at the time, was so engulfed in the idea of race, I was surprised they didn't go there. Yeah. And I feel like, yeah, go on. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I'm just very curious when I think about it, because yeah, you can't separate race from OJ. The idea, of Although OJ probably, thought he could, but no one else did. Oh, yeah. But I am curious about what were the conversations coming from above when it came to we want to do an allegory. And when did these episodes air? What was the date for them? Do you have those oh, good. pretty sure they're uh, early 95. That's a good question. I Let me double check this. Because we, I mean, we and we've gotten to know the, many of the writers very well at this point. And I know none of them are people who would be interested in shirking away from having a tough conversation, especially in that particular room. And so I'd be curious about two things. One, what they wanted to say with it, and therefore, like, what parts of the allegory would they focus upon, and if race fit into what they were trying to say with it, and two, did what the the network yeah, here, feel comfortable releasing yeah, a sorry, sorry, I found the date. I didn't mean to interrupt. But this is interesting because when you, you mentioned the space of months, I hadn't really put the timeline in my head, and this is very interesting. This aired September 1994. It is the second episode of Love and War. They, oh, wow. they had to have pitched this in the summer or filmed this in the summer. So it was very raw and hmm. very new to do. Probably one of the first people to sort of mm-hmm. do something like this. But I, I do want to say that uh, I do commend them for trying to so early on in this OJ thing, looking at it and going, right. well, this is a media circus. And we as a show about media need to show how ridiculous this is and and sort of fits into some of the themes that they've talked about on the show before which i think you guys have alluded to on the podcast as well is this idea of at the time of entertainment versus news Mm. Mm -hmm. and the news department merging with the with many entertainment departments around sort of the late 80s early 90s and this fight of well this is what the audience wants to see this is what's Mm. going to have them tune in and get the ratings by following this bronco or a white car Mm -hmm. Uh, on a high-speed chase because that's entertaining. Mm-hmm. So I do commend them for that. And also, yeah, and I love them showing essentially, you know, the the people in the newsroom struggling to know what to talk about because I feel like I love it when people emphasize just like the unbelievable boringness of the Bronco chase. Like you're just watching this guy essentially in a parade um, of his own making. And, yes. you know, just this, you know, people being forced to sit in a newsroom and speculate about, you know, just speculate about the most uninspiring details. And there's a moment where, you know, someone brings a bag to a cop on the scene and they're like, it could be anything. And then it's a coffee, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Just it sends me back to another like Gen X millennial moment of when the when you get a bad color commentator on me. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And just and I feel as if, you know, they're the, and watching these characters struggle with what to do, you know, 
we get to watch in a way that I really appreciate these characters who are all veteran news people. We've been watching them do this job for years at this point, really struggle with their sense of bias. And I love that they had as an analog for OJ an astronaut, because it's really hard to think of another job aside from a football player that makes, you know, men who identify as as straight in a way that they feel some anxiety about typically just allow themselves to get gaga over, you know, and just people. And I feel as if maybe the um, there's kind of a, a false, um, there's a sense that you have to kind of choose either or. Like you worship your heroes or you you believe that there can be heroes or you just accept like, well, it looks really bad and I feel like this guy probably did it. It's like, no, you can like, I don't know. Like, I think he can uh, he can be brought down to earth without that involving the presumption of guilt by the public. Like, the public can just be like, well, this seems complicated. I might not know based on my previous fond feelings about this person. It has now been six hours since Duke Robinson was declared a fugitive. <laughs> Duke, I don't know if you're watching. If you are, please turn yourself in. If you're innocent, have faith in the system. And if not, well, look at all the other guilty people who've gotten off scot-free. So something that you showed us before we started recording, which you're very uh, proud of as we are that you have it, which is Faith Ford's cookbook. With a foreword by Candace Bergen. Yeah, I believe this was an Amazon purchase. It might have been a gift from my mom when I was still in high school. And this is a thing I do. I love celebrity cookbooks and I love... I think this is a very kind of a creepy thing to do, and I don't know why more creepy fans don't do it. Like eating the foods that people eat is very yes. like it makes you feel very close to them. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's such I, a I beautiful way that. of putting it. I love it so much. I don't I don't have this cookbook, but just guessing from, you know, knowing Faith's Instagram, mm-hmm. I'm assuming that a lot of these are probably family recipes. Southern. Uh as you, yeah, as you said that, I was opening it. And yeah, the title is Cooking with Faith, and they are. Um, it's, I think the basic gist is classic Southern food that won't harden your arteries, um, or that will if <laughs> that you wanted like to, faith. but it's going to give you some options. What's Let's your see. favorite? Okay. You know, my thing with cookbooks is that I will find a few recipes that I always make, and then I will just not explore further so I'm looking at this and like there's so much stuff that I need to try making and I'm trying to cook more this year so I feel like this is going to be the you thing to Julia do. Julia and Julia that book. Oh my I was God, just I about should. to say that. Oh. I was like you need to Julia and Julia that I so do. I'm like I want one too. I want to have a Julia and Julia like book club now to make Yes. And I wish my name was Hope because then it could be Hope and Faith but they've already oh, used yes. that joke to great effect. It's fine. Um Okay. I'm just going to read you the titles of a few recipes that, like, leap out to me that I think I should make. Okay. Mama's Tuna Boats. Faith's Fresh Petite Pea Salad. Tiny Meatloaf for Two. I love that. Oh, tiny Sweet. Oh, there's a lot of grit recipes, obviously. Mm -hmm. And, okay, but so the two things that I always make from this are just... The basic biscuits, skillet drop biscuits with variations. That's the wrecked page, I think, actually. Um, I was trying to remember which page I had wrecked. Yeah, this is the wrecked one. It's not that bad. <laughs> but this is the one that you can tell has been used it's and all well the other loved. ones. Oh, yeah, it, it has been loved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then 
yeah, this is the first biscuit recipe I ever made. And then my favorite recipe in here is big time brownies. And I will uh, read to you from the description if you like. Yes, yes, please. Okay. Oh, and you can see I have some chocolate from the big time brownies on here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and it's got family photos, which I like too. Okay. Big time brownies. And so she says, basically, she moved from Louisiana to New York at 17 to start modeling um, and missed her mother's food and couldn't cook. And she writes, my mother decided that if she couldn't feed her daughter at home, she would send homemade food to her, which began her obsession with creating the perfect brownie because brownies are perfect for mailing. Each month, she'd go into her laboratory and measure, sift, mix, and bake up batches of the chocolatey goodies, then ship them off to New York. I would call her up the day they arrived. The box would be sitting open in my lap. Ah, they're so great, I would say, both cheeks stuffed full. And, oh, and then she has a note from her mom, too, which I love. And she talks about, if you're going to send brownies, do a two-day ship. Um, so pro tip. It is a one-pan brownie recipe. I love one-pan recipes. And also, as I'm looking at this, I'm, I'm seeing that my mom has written instructions for cutting the ingredients in half if you want to make <laughs> one dozen little brownies instead of two, which is what Faith says. Um as, and I'm realizing as I'm reading this that, like, I loved this story when I first got this cookbook. And then at the time, <laughs> like, as someone who was studying for the SATs, like, I was contemplating going off into the world without my mom, who I was extremely close to. And just, like, yeah, I think I just loved that this was a story about going into the world and your mom sending you brownies. And you can make those very brownies. And they're great brownies. <laughs> That's so great. This is an odd question. Is there a pie recipe in there? Because I know that Faith is always making pies on her Instagram. Oh, there has to be. Um, yes, there are many pies. Okay. Oh, and I've also made the peach cobbler. I really like that one. So there's Ooh, a pie crust recipe, lovely. apple crunch pie, blueberry pie, fresh strawberry pie, classic vanilla cream pie with variations, banana cream, wow, coconut cream, caramel cream, Whoa. <laughs> chocolate chip pecan pie. Yeah. There are, there are probably 18 pies in here. I love that you asked, is there a pie yeah. recipe in there? Come own? on. And you just got met with dozens. That was a mistake <laughs> on my part in my wordage. <laughs> oh, and then it ends with pickles. Yeah, this is, I don't know. I'm, I love cookbooks. Here's something that might be interesting. When I listened to your episode, uh, and I know that you were not the lead on that. I know Mike mm. was, but I made some notes. Mm. For some small things that you got wrong. Ooh, but I'm excited about this. So what I thought was interesting was that, mm -hmm. I'm going to remind people this is the Dan Quayle versus Murphy Brown episode you did. Mm -hmm. You guys talked about that it was called Murphy's Revenge, mm -hmm. which is so interesting. And I have a feeling that that might have been some of the titles of the articles on the show. Oh. But it was, a but it was actually the episode, which was a two, well, it was an hour long episode that mm -hmm. in syndication will air as a two-parter. But it was a full hour episode called You Say Potato. Mm. How I can really pronounce that? It's really, it's really a spelling joke. Potato, mm -hmm. uh, but it's potato with an e. I say nice. potato. Nice. That's a much better title. <laughs> I think so. It's 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 still mocking him. Yeah, and I also love the idea that like that. Then if you call it Murphy's Revenge, then that's like, I don't know. It just implies that this fictional character is like actually coming for his head, as opposed to like there's a sitcom episode about something someone in government said in their official role. Yeah, especially because at the end of the episode, she has that wonderful speech in front of all of these single parents mm. 
to be like, that's what this is about. This isn't about getting revenge. It's about saying these are families, too, and mm. you're ignoring them. Right. Yeah. Also, something interesting was, uh, I think a lot of people don't realize this, but the father of Murphy Brown's child was her ex-husband. Uh-huh. Not mm. just a boyfriend. Which is interesting because the episode, she actually had two men that she was sort of revying for her attention. And mm-hmm. so the cliffhanger at the end of the season was, who's the father of Murphy Brown's baby? Jake or oh, Jerry. No. And then, of course, we find out that she only slept with one of them. Hmm. So she knew who the father was. It wasn't like she was just, you know, hooking up with both these men. Not that that's a problem. Doing my two dads. Yeah. But then if you if there's a question and then you die, then your kid has to go live with Paul Reiser and someone else simultaneously. Exactly. And then they get a DNA test. They don't want to get the results and they throw it in the damn garbage. Yeah, they did that. But no, it was very sweet. I love it's my so terrible. good. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the reason that they did that, they yeah. thought that the public would be able to accept it more, which is so, I think, very telling of the time. If she had once been married to him. And is this the guy she was married to for like a day or a month or something? Like yeah, that? for five days. For yeah, five that was days. him. Yeah. 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 Which is, yeah. Jake with the good hair. It's an interesting concession. And, uh, you know, yeah, that's really interesting. So it's like she's not an unwed mother. She's a formerly wed mother. I also found it really confusing, the concept of a child born out of wedlock. I was like, doesn't that mean that you come, you emerge from wedlock and it's fine? (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Truly. It's, oh man, the first Born born out of. Yeah. And then also a small thing, which is, I think, just a fun thing to mention, is that, so Jake, who's the Mm ex-husband, who's supposed to be like an Abby Hoffman kind of a character, Mm. He didn't just leave Murphy and the baby for apartheid. Okay. It was one of the many things. Uh, the rainforest, he wanted to help people who were hungry in Ethiopia. He he just wanted to be, I like to think, important. Mm. I have He's a problem. He's very eco-conscious. Right. Yes. Uh, I have I have an issue with Jake personally. <laughs> I think that I think he wants to help people. I think that that's a genuine thing, but I think a lot of it is about his ego. Mm. That's just me. I would say a lot about Jerry's ego as well. Let's all calm down. They're both egomaniacs. <laughs> oh, sure. She uh, loves she <laughs> loves a certain kind of guy. Don't get no, me yeah. wrong. We Jerry all have Gold. a type. Yeah. One of my favorite things on our podcast is to challenge Lauren's feelings about characters before they've given her a reason to have those feelings. <laughs> so like when we first meet Jake, she's like, oh, Jake. I'm like, we don't know that about Jake yet. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's very good about it's reminding like just, me. We don't know that yet. Yeah. Yes. No, it's like talking about the early stages of the O.J. Simpson investigation. And I'm like, we don't know that yet. I mean, we do, but we don't. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. we have to be John Q. Driveway in 1994. Yeah. And I feel like that, I love that because that speaks to like parenting or mothering versus like ostentatiously saving the whole world rather than, you know, taking good care <laughs> of a, a small piece of it. I mean, those are just mm-hmm. some small things. I mean, other than that, it was a great episode. I mean, obviously, there are also <laughs> you know, nuanced things that you're not going to get from, mm-hmm. from an article. But I was like, but this is interesting. Unfortunately, with the Dan Quayle thing, that was like the height of my obsession with Murphy Brown. So I've, yeah. I've, I've seen mm. so much stuff about this. I'm quite sick of the man. <laughs> but I still found your episode so fascinating. Thank you so much. Yes, truly. I think I had like two VHS tapes. Everything that... Because I used to record everything on Murphy Brown, like not just the mm-hmm. episodes. So that summer after that episode and the Dan Quayle thing, I had like two VHS copies of clips because it was mentioned so many damn times. That's so great. <laughs> yeah. And I, well, and thank you for, for the corrections too. Cause like that, I feel like that is one of the things 
that maybe it's easier now to admit about media than it was at the time that like, we're all out here doing our best, but like, even in a best faith effort, you're going to make mistakes. And like that happens. And then the way you do it is, you know, you go back, you find them, you find a way to insert them into the record if you can, um, you know, and just this, and I, I feel like the democratization of media helps with that. Cause I think we, you know, I, for a lot of my life, and I know a part of me still feels this way, had this sort of childlike fantasy that like the real adults are taking care of it. And like, you can go to bed and not worry about it. And, you know, and this idea that like the professional media, the, you know, the professional <laughs> congressman, whoever, like they know what they're doing. Just don't worry about it. They'll take care of it. And it's like, no, attempting to uncover and describe the truth is like, it's a very difficult job. And it's not just difficult in that way that you have to be great at it and special and then you can do it. It's like just everyone's learning the whole time. And just, I don't know, it just feels better to live in that world. Oh, yeah, I definitely, I've, this last, you know, year or so, I've been like, oh, Oh, hell. Yeah, I still <laughs> want to be able to look and be like, can, but the adults know what they're doing. Yeah. Oh, I'm the adult. I'm the, ad- oh, no. Oh, we're screwed. It reminds me of like the episode of The Office where they like basically come and destroy the warehouse, like make a huge mess. And then Michael's like, well, there, someone will clean this up. And Daryl's like, we're the guys who have to clean this up. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, we should definitely have you back just to talk about other stuff. I mean, we both oh, love all that. love Quantum Leap, which I discovered from your show. Yeah, we all love oh, Quantum my Leap. God. Quantum Leap. Speaking of Quantum Leap. Okay. First of all, one time I have a very fond memory of I was like singing the Quantum Leap theme song to myself As in my should. apartment so loudly that a guy riding his bike passed on the street went, shut up. <laughs> oh, no. That's his problem. <laughs> no, I will not. I'm just on the saga so. But yeah, but the episodes where Sam has to be a woman, by the way, like speaking of just what all everything we've just been talking about. I have not amazing. seen yeah. those since they aired. That would be an interesting rewatch. Yeah, there's see, one like, where he gets sexually harassed and has to deal with it in the workplace. I mean, I'm sure that that happens in all of them, but I'm thinking of one where he's a career girl in New York City. I remember that one because that was the first time that I heard, um, oh, what's her name? Jorgensen. I never heard of her before who's one of the first sort of public trans women, because he mentions oh, yeah, her Christine in the Oh, yeah, Jorgensen. Huh. Yeah, and I had never, as a child, I was like, I don't know who that is. And so, like, I asked people and, like, looked it up and stuff. Yeah, yep. I remember that episode specifically. Yeah, I would, that would be such a fun one. And that's the one where he's putting on the lipstick and the mirror, and I think they use yeah. that in the intro. I also love that that show had three minutes worth of intros, and it's like, you just did that no back then. No one does that anymore. Oh, so <laughs> I still probably have... I. I also still probably have memorized. Um, but yeah, we would love to do that. And the crossover, of course, is Scott Bakula, who ended up being one of Murphy's love interests. Scott Bak... Well, and also in Love oh, and Bax. War, Mike, that's Michael Nori in that show, right? It is, yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh my God, Michael Nori. Like, it's f- like these men who just like... I know that people know who they are, but like, it's not like naming someone with like hear it in 2021 and recognize the star power of it but like i had the biggest crush on michael nori mm-hmm. when i was a teenage girl in the early aughts it's very hard to explain but like i watched flash dance a week oh. after i got my period and i imprinted on it mm-hmm. <laughs> oh you are in the best company all we do is talk about these people that are huge names yeah. to us that we realize most of our contemporaries have no idea who we're still talking about 
No idea. Yeah. Yeah. We're like, let's have a section and talk about this guy who played Mo Green in The Godfather. Oh my God. Yeah. And we just swoon for an hour. And this is why, you know, when I'm recording a show and Mike or somebody is like, now, you know, to explain it to people who like weren't around. And I'm like, no, no, no. There's always going to be like random 14 year olds who know all about 70s cinema and we must honor them. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Let us not other them. They yes. are there and we yeah. will not talk down to them. Uh, so I have I have two very, very important questions that I wanted to say for the end. One is, do you remember slash have a favorite secretary in Murphy? <sighs> okay. Yes. Kyle. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Yay, Kyle. That's Kyle's very special to me because I think that's how I would do in his uh, his role in a right. way. Like, you know, so, just yeah. like, I don't know. They were typically pretty relatable characters, though, weren't they? <laughs> Kyle? Yes, I'm... Um... You seen my ant farm? It's not in my office. Oh, I meant to tell you. I was cleaning the glass. The poor little guys, they could hardly see out. Well, not that it's really a problem now. Oh, Kyle. I love those ants. Well, I'm sorry. If it makes you feel any better, most of them survived the crash. <laughs> Boy, can those little things skedaddle. Oh, oh great. I like the one who's just constantly crying and we don't know why. And also, I mean, I don't know if this counts, but when Kramer, like, ended up playing a secretary that on totally Murphy counts. Brown. Okay, great. I thought Kramer was great. On a different yeah. show. I think so. That was some great fake typing. And I feel like, there, yeah, there's something about, like, the ability, like, something we underappreciate about sitcoms is, like, it's very hard to make a good sitcom. You know, like, there's mm-hmm. a lot of, like, okay ones out there, but, like, the ones where people are able to, like, just make you laugh by doing something kind of in the scope of human experience is, like, it's very special. Like, I always think of the episode of The Nanny where basically Fran has is in the hospital with Mr. Sheffield and has snuck in, and the doctor thinks she's a nurse and is, like, shave the patient, which she means his groin, but she's just like, all right, and just, like goes about shaving his face, which doesn't sound funny, but it is because it's comedic so acting is a thing. <laughs> uh, and so my other question for you, and I lovingly call this pick your fighter, is if you can't if you can't choose Murphy, mm. who of the gang is your fighter? Mm. Who's, who's like, your favorite? Like I I will die for Jim. I will mm-hmm. Jim is my my ride or die. I love him forever. I mean I've I've always been fond of Miles because I love sort of in over their head like nebishes. Uh but you know honestly I got to say Corky I just feel like she's such a special character like like he said like she gets to grow she gets to be someone who is introduced you know the in a way that almost any other show of the time we just use her as, as a continual punchline or just at, you know at best use her the way Chrissy was on Three's Company. I feel like Chrissy is a good analog, right? Because like, I, I, some years ago, I just watched the whole, I binged the whole uh, first couple seasons of Three's Company altogether. And when you watch them, I mean, one of the things I will say about watching stuff all in a row is that you do kind of notice what the writers are up to in a more distinct Mm -hmm. way. And I was like, the more successful this show got, the ditzier Chrissy got, because they realized that people liked it. And they just mm-hmm. leaned right into it until they fell yep. over. And, like, you know, she's not a bad character. I love Three's yeah. Company, but just, like, the easiest laugh isn't always the one you have to go for. Yeah, I agree. I I feel like I came in uh, 
I came into this podcast realizing how protective I was of Corky. And I think part of that is being in my 30s mm. now, looking back at, you know, looking back at my younger self and realizing how much I let uh, the world and society tell me that there was, that you had to be a, a Murphy or a Corky. Huh. And how much Corky's dramatization taught me that it wasn't one or the other and that she is incredibly complex yeah. and kind and good and very smart. And also, I think as one of the more admirable egos on the mm. show that she's very proud of herself and has a lot of integrity but she doesn't let mm -hmm. that get in the way mm -hmm. mm -hmm. i had forgotten about that too that she was very confident in herself when we started watching the series like, you like go, girl very confident mm -hmm. like uh, yeah just based on the advice she gives murphy yeah oh and also <laughs> this is something my mom and i we still occasionally say this to each other um I think it's when they give them the morning show to do. It's another really early one. But Corky goes, Murphy, we are going to have so much fun. <laughs> yes. Yes. That is one of our favorite yeah. episodes of her. And as someone who's like, who's really like a, a pretty bubbly uh, person who for a long time was doing an impression of a serious person and, you know, work capacities in one way or another, like bubbly people have things to say too, you know, and, and I will say like a piece of feedback yes. that I've gotten occasionally as a woman with a podcast is like, you say the word like too much. You sound like a teenage girl. And it's like, okay, mm -hmm. so I sound like a teenage girl. Are you saying you wouldn't listen to a teenage girl who had something to say? It's considered yeah. an insult. Yeah. And just the thing. And I feel like Corky kind of forces you to encounter that you know, something that I think all, and speaking of maligned women, speaking of Brittany, speaking of like, how did we do what we did, even if passively in the 90s? I think there's also this idea that like, you know, if someone is a beauty queen, if they're a model, um, someone like Paula Barbieri, who we've talked a lot about in the OJ episodes, who I think didn't receive public sympathy because. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's been really fascinating for me, you going through her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad. Yeah. And I think just like. It's so easy to overlook just sort of the the fact that someone who is beautiful for a living uh, has other experiences and has, like, a life. And, like, mm -hmm. we're born looking in a way that was profitable to certain industries and they couldn't help it. And just that I think something that has so successfully turned women against each other uh, over the years is the idea that, like, if you have succeeded in like a face industry basically then like you have betrayed your gender and it's like no it's just those are mm -hmm. where a lot of the jobs are <laughs> <laughs> sarah why don't you tell everybody where they can find you so you can find me on twitter at remember underscore sarah i have two podcasts like i said one is called you're wrong about one is called why are dads i think they're both very special little babies and yeah come Come see me on Twitter, and I will probably be tweeting about whatever piece of random media I am consuming for some reason as other people are talking about the news. You are very entertaining on Twitter, I have to oh, say. Oh, thank you. Just as much as you are on your podcast. Definitely everyone should check them out. We'll have links to the podcast and information in the summary and in the show notes. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. <laughs> this was so great. Thank you so Appreciate much. Appreciate it. If you would like to follow the podcast, you can follow us at Murphy Brown Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're also at murphybrownpod.com.
Or you can email us directly at murphybrownpod at gmail.com. Yeah, we would love to hear your thoughts on the episodes or any questions that you have. Talk soon. Bye. Blueberry pie, fresh strawberry pie, classic vanilla cream pie with variations, chocolate chip pecan pie.